Ready? Born ready. Sir Ramal got you. Sir Ramal got you. Sir Ramal got you. Welcome back. It's another episode of your favorite political podcast, Where the Party At. I'm your host, Sava Long. So, y'all, we are back with another episode. Let's dig right in. And this is a little bit of a throwback with uh, some new flavor on top. You know, just one of those things. I'm just going to dig in and we'll, we'll talk about it. Keith, I know you got something to say about this. So remember, fast or rewind to February when the Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones hosted a Black History Month event, and I made the Black folks who co-hosted it with him my party poopers. Do you remember that? Let's stick to the credits and listen to that portion of the pod. Talking about something that Stacy actually came, brought up in, in her campaign, the number of minority and Black particularly black folks who have access to state contracts. Are we talking about that? Are we talking about legislation looking at all those Senate house and Senate bills that are being passed that are protective of and support and uplift black people? Are we talking about education reform that helps black people? Are we talking about criminal justice reform that helps black people? Or are we talking about ways to help make sure that black people have access to the American dream in Georgia? Because if you're not talking about any of that, then a Black History Month event does not matter. All right. So that was February of 2023. So why am I bringing this up? What's going on with Bird Jones? Well, just as I suspected, those Black folks got juked, just like I thought they would. So what happened? A few episodes ago, I mentioned that the state legislator passed $66 million in budget cuts to the university system of Georgia. The chancellor, Sonny Perdue, the former governor, was very vocal in his pushback about those cuts. And in response, our friend Bert Jones sent a letter to Sonny Perdue, and he asked him, how much money higher education institutions in Georgia, so universities and colleges, are spending on diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, also known as DEI. And so Bert says, I want to know not only how much money are you spending, but I want to know who are the people in these roles and what is the goal for each of these programs. Here's what the lieutenant governor wrote in his letter, and I quote, These DEI programs are particularly concerning when taxpayer funds are used to enforce the type of intellectual and, and political conformity that appears to be the hallmark of many campus DEI initiatives. In my view, rather than promoting the mission of public education, when used in this way, such programs inhibit the ability of colleges and universities to promote academic and intellectual freedom in both their course offerings and campus events. End quote. 
So that's a portion of the lieutenant governor's letter. Well, over the weekend, in response, Walter Kimbrough, who is the son of the Reverend Walter Kimbrough, who's a, a scion in the Black History Movement in the city of Atlanta, Metro Atlanta, he penned an op-ed, an opinion piece in the AJC. Walter Kimbrough is also the interim executive director of the Black Men's Research Institute at Morehouse College. Here's what he wrote. And this is just one piece of this. He said that Bert Jones' point is clear. Get rid of the black stuff. In the op-ed, Walter Kimbrough goes on to talk about how Florida Governor Ron DeSantis did the exact same thing where he requested, you know, who were the people and what are the amount of money um, on things spent on DEI. But the data showed that in Florida, the DEI programs accounted for less than 1% of the total budget for these institutions, these universities and colleges. So keep my question, my question to the listeners is, did the lieutenant governor talk to the black folks who were part of that Black History Month program about DEI? Did he talk to any of them about uh, how he as lieutenant governor can use his power and his office to support black entrepreneurs? Did he talk about how he can help raise the rate of college graduation for black folks? I just want to understand before the governor made that, the lieutenant governor made that decision to write that letter. Did he actually talk to any black people? I know he didn't. But, and the ones that he probably did talk to told him it was okay. Because, you know, there's another lieutenant governor in North Carolina that the black guy is talking to Sam Weaver Jones talk. So he probably did. Yeah, and he's a Republican. Yeah. That The one you're talking about is a Republican. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he probably did talk to some black people that's agreeing with him. Okay. You're probably right. I, I, I'm just, you know, when I first said on the pod about that, some black folks were like, oh, Sabah, you know, that's not right. Like, they're just doing what they need to do. I'm like, all the money is not good money. I'm not just leaving there. Uh, but we, Bert Jones did exactly what we thought he would do with respect to this whole thing. Moving on. Again, in Georgia news, I guess we're just kind of skipping Atlanta news. So, so this is just going to be a Georgia and national news kind of pod uh, for, this, for this episode. So it took more than eight years nearly a decade, but medical marijuana dispensaries are finally open in Georgia. Wild that it took this long. So as of today, there are only two in the entire state, one in Marietta and one in Macon, but there are more stores that are slated to open. Right now, only two companies have the licenses to sell, and this was part of the reason why it took so long to get to this point of actually selecting the companies and the whole commission and all that. Now, you and I cannot just go off the street and purchase medical marijuana. Anyone who wants to buy it has to have what's called a low THC oil registry card, and you get that from the Department of Health. So yes, medical marijuana is harder to purchase than a gun in Georgia. Interesting. So how do you get that card? 
well, your doctor has their uh, say that you, in fact, need medical marijuana. What is it used for? Well, things like treating Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, any kind of chronic pain, seizures, things of that sort. I really don't understand why it took so long uh, in the whole process. We have families going to the state capitol, talking to state lawmakers, parents with, you know, young kids, five and six years old who had debilitating seizures and they needed this low THC oil to be able to stem the frequency and the length of those seizures. And so finally, you know, it's a great day. It was uh, a good um, a good opportunity for these families and caregivers and the people who need this medication. But I think this is just one step. Uh, next, I mean, obviously, we talked on the pod about legalizing marijuana broadly. But if you only want to stay in the medication lens of this conversation, I think the other thing that needs to be legalized is the use of psychedelic drugs for therapy. That's to treat depression, to treat other medical issues. Um, you know, there's been studies around psychedelic drugs treating things like alcohol abuse. Um, so we think about the number of people in this country uh, who are depressed and who have mental illness, mental you know challenges. We are not doing enough as a country, as a state, to make sure they have access to treatments. Now, I believe. Uh, legalizing the use of psychedelic drugs for therapy is uh, an excellent way to start to address that problem. So I'm not holding my breath on that, considering how long it took for medical marijuana, uh, but perhaps uh, there will be some kind of bold leadership on this. Uh, moving right along, the next thing I think is worth mentioning, we haven't done this in a while, is just talking about some union actions that are happening right here in Georgia. So for all my beer bros, uh, Creature Comforts Brewery in Athens, which is a big one, uh, they their workers have filed to unionize, but they're having a dispute about who can vote. So because of that, they're waiting on the National Labor Review Board to rule on if someone who is a worker in the brewery but is also a supervisor is allowed to vote. Um, there's a question about are supervisors considered management and not regular workers. And then uh, Hormel workers and Tucker are, have just voted to join the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. So if you ever ate uh, Hormel chili or if you eat Hormel chili, well, Tucker Low Location is one of the places that manufactures that, that uh, chili. And then if you remember being a kid on the yellow school bus, the Bluebird bus, right, the yellow bus uh, in Macon and Fort Valley, their workers have received approval to hold a union election. So they received approval from the NLRB, but they haven't yet set a date on when the election will take place. And that's going to be more than a thousand workers. So that's a really big deal. And then there was one loss in this. Uh, Aramark sales reps in Savannah, they held an election to join the local Teamsters union, but they lost that vote. There's a lot more uh, on the union election front or union action front that you can tune into. Uh, you can check out Atlanta Civic Circle's website at atlantaciviccircle.org. We are recording on May 1st, which is known as May Day, uh, which is a national day of union action and solidarity. So 
happy May Day for those who are in the fight uh, for labor rights. I think we're going to see a lot more union action over the next three to five years, just as the cost of living continues to increase. We're, you know, having a conversation about are we in a recession, yes or no. Uh, you've got, you know, workers who are, uh, are feeling overworked, right? There's still a lot of tension in the labor market um, post-pandemic and people's, what they're willing to tolerate has changed as well. On the AI front, I'm curious to see, like, there's going to be this tipping point where it's not just blue-collar workers who are unionizing, but it's also white-collar workers, right? So the folks who are behind a desk or in front of a computer all day, and when AI is able to do their job at a faster clip and they're being laid off, uh, there's going to be a big shift in how we perceive, you know, this whole union conversation. Because I think right now it's easy for folks to dismiss unions because they're like, oh, that's not skilled labor, right? And then when you see like, oh, okay, well, the person who has a college degree or the person who does this thing behind a desk at a cubicle, when their job is eliminated, then it starts to shift people's mindsets. Completely unrelated, uh, I want to mention something that's sort of in the AI sense a little bit. Uh, but the FBI director, Chris Ray, who, by the way, is from Georgia, he testified last week before the House Appropriations Committee. And that's basically the, the subcommittee that starts to work on the budget of the Washington, D.C. right now is in the middle of the budget process. And so he was making his case for the FBI's budget. And so naturally, when you are advocating for your department, you do everything you can to make sure you have money. Uh, Republicans are proposing across-the-board budget cuts, including the FBI, in part because they think the FBI has become politicized. Uh, but this was an interesting moment from the testimony. Take a listen to this. Uh, today's cyber threats are more pervasive, hit a wider variety of victims, and carry the potential for greater damage than ever before. You can take China. A key part of the Chinese government's multi-pronged strategy to lie, to cheat, and to steal their way to surpassing us as the global superpower is cyber. The scale of the Chinese cyber threat is unparalleled. They've got a bigger hacking program than every other major nation combined and have stolen more of our personal and corporate data than all other nations, big or small, combined. To give you a sense of what we're up against, if each one of the FBI's cyber agents and intel analysts focused exclusively on the China threat, on nothing but China, Chinese hackers would still outnumber FBI cyber personnel by at least 50 to 1. But of course, China is not the only challenge in cyberspace, not even close. We're investigating over 100 different ransomware variants, each variant with scores of victims as well. Oh boy. I heard that and I was like, that is not good. I mean, in reality, I think there needs to be some context. I mean, China has way, way more people than we do, right? So of course they would have more hackers to FBI staff. Um, but it's just an interesting little thing to note. Uh, don't Make sure you, you got your passwords right. 
Don't do password one, two, three, four. Okay. <laughs> That's for you, mom. Moving on to something really interesting happening. I think we mentioned this in the last pod. Yeah, that Tucker Carlson is off the air. Um, and what's interesting is Fox News has seen a drop in viewership across its shows. And it looks like at least some of those viewers are going to Newsmax, which is a low-budget version of Fox News. Um, so just to compare, Fox News shows on average are between 1.5 to 2.6 million views a day. In comparison, Newsmax is in the low 400s to 500s, right? So Tucker's show was in that, you know, people were tuning in between 1.5 to 2.6 million. The same person, or another person that team, same time slotted Newsmax was pulling in four to 500. And then the other thing is the type of ads on Fox far more profitable than the ads on Newsmax. Newsmax ads are like, you know, some... A lot of, uh, a lot of what basically kind of feels like snake oil ads, you know, like this, I don't know, this type of nutrient and it's like some this older person. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know about this. I mean, it's the balance of dollars just to sell to. Yes. It's a lot of the type of stuff that you would see on Alex Jones. Exactly. You know, or reverse mortgages, and that's another one. So the the type of ads are not, it's not like, you know, Coca-Cola or some big company uh, with like a, a huge brand. But all of that to say, uh, Fox is doing strong in the coveted 25 to 44-year-old demo. Um, those are folks who are more likely to, to, uh, and more likely to purchase the ads that they see uh, is just a, a, a highly coveted demographic in Fox. According to them, they're still doing really strong in that demo. A lot of the folks who watch Tucker, I think we mentioned this on the last pod, tend to be older, right? Trended much older, so 60 and above. But in all of this, I think what's really interesting is what role will conservative media play in 2024, well, Roll Cox play, right? We saw the shift happen when Rupert Murdoch, I'd say, quote, allowed his outlets to stop shielding Trump from bad news, right? So anything from the Wall Street Journal to Fox News that he owned, um, they pulled away from, you know, only reporting what seemed to be more positive stories of Trump. Um, relatedly, Breitbart News, which is an online news site that Steve Bannon used to run, they are under fire because the editor of Breitbart told their reporters on hold, to hold off on covering Ron DeSantis because the editor of Breitbart is a big Trump supporter. And so it's caused this internal rift in the organization where folks are like, hey, I had to have sign-off from the editor of the site on if I can write about this or write about that. Um, and so there's a, a bit of censorship happening within Breitbart. And so, you know, the question is, who in the right-wing media is going to determine uh, the shape and tenor of the Republican primary? And then, of course, obviously, the general election 
So if you're a never Trumper, but you're a Republican, you don't really have a media home. Um, but if you were a right-wing Republican, you've got a plethora of options. So I just kind of find it personally interesting if you think about uh, conservatives who talk a lot about censorship, um, who talk a lot about the media elite, um, and this is exactly what is happening on the on the conservative side, where you've got uh, the heads of these Republican or conservative outlets who are going to very clearly shape uh, the the primary and the future of the Republican Party. We will see what happens there. And it's interesting that there's not an equivalent on the Democratic side. I know folks would say the mainstream media, but outside of that, there's really not an equivalent. Right? There's no... Rachel Maddow does not at all compare to Tucker Carlson. She does not have the sway that a Tucker Carlson had. Well, the sway, that's the Democrats' problem. But do we have those talking points? Yeah. Yeah. They have yeah. talking points. It's just the sway isn't there because right. we talk about it all the time. The Democrats don't play to their base. See, Republicans right. play to their base. So it's not like they're on CNN having a whole reparations panel and then all black people tune in, like, oh, what was going on? Like, Maybe that's why they fired Don Lemon, because he was really wanting a reparations panel, and then we'd love to do it. That probably, you know? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, he looked, he he been back at, uh, what's his name, the Vivek, the Indian guy was like, hey. Yeah. You know, I'm black, you're not going to tell me. And that's the thing. See, they that's the kind of discourse CNN has to have. And if they don't want to have that discourse, then the base isn't listening, so there's no sway. On the other right. side, they are directly like, "Oh, y'all don't, y'all don't like uh, Chicago. Let's talk about Chicago." Even though right. Chicago crime rate is going down, you know, it doesn't matter. They're playing to the base, so exactly. That's that's the issue. Yeah. By the way, if someone was reporting that um, Tucker and um, and uh, what's his name, right. Don Lemon, they're like they're now like text besties because they're they have the same lawyer. <laughs> they were both fired on the same day, just and so they're like they've been. That's yeah. There's like a joke that the two of them will you know start working on the same network or something. I watch the show. If they if they uh, start a podcast, I watch it. Yeah, that would actually be interesting. I I don't I don't trust. Don Lemon's debate abilities compared to Tucker. That's why they'll do it. But, That's why Tucker would do it. Oh, because he'll just eat Don Lemon alive. Well, yeah. Well, hopefully Don is smarter than that. <laughs> we'll see. Speaking of debate, uh, this could be the first election where the lead candidates from both parties refuse to participate in birth primary and general election debates. It's really fascinating. Biden has already said that he will not participate in Democratic Party uh, primary debates. This is like already a thing uh, because he's the de facto Democratic nominee, right? The only other person who's really running as a Democrat is Marianne Wilson, Williams or Williamson and like everyone knows she does not have it all a shot. Uh, and there's also now a push by Trump supporters 
to skip the debates in the Republican primary and also coronate him as the de facto nominee because there's such a gap between Trump and everyone else in the polls, including DeSantis. And then I think we mentioned this on the pod before. So if you fast forward to the general election and it's Biden versus Trump, I don't see a world where Biden's folks agree to do debates with Trump because Trump is going to lie during the debate. He's going to call Biden names during the debate and he's going to do everything he can, uh, you know, to kind of impose and dominate. Um, and speak over uh, the debate moderators and everything else. And so if you remember that very first debate in, in 2020 between, or 2020, yeah, in 2020 between Trump and Biden, it was such a mess. Like you couldn't even really hear anything. So it was just the two of them yelling back and forth at each other. So I don't know if it's going to happen, but it does feel like very likely that we could have for the first time and maybe ever. I don't know how long a historian can tell us this, but no debates in the in the primary um, and possibly no debates in the general. I do not want to see a rematch. Well, you and, yeah, you and 70-something percent of Americans don't want to see a rematch of Trump-Biden. My, my guess is you'd have low turnout, right, because people are upset with both options. And maybe, maybe someone runs as a third party. Hopefully third party, or I would love it if uh, it was high turnout for like local, but like low turnout for president. Right. That was his left blank. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could have what happened in Georgia between Warnock and, um, yeah. and, and uh, Herschel Walker. Right. So you had folks and then Kemp and Stacey. So you had you had Republicans who voted for Brian Kemp, but did not vote for Herschel Walker. You could have that happen, but on a national level. So folks don't vote the top of the ticket, which is incredibly rare, but they do vote further down the ticket. And, I, you know, if that happens, I mean, that's clearly a referendum on the the status quo right and hopefully that sends a message to both parties all right on to our favorite part of the show party poopers and party starters ever go around singing the party pooper song every party needs a pooper that's why we invited you party pooper (laughs) party pooper so let's start with party pooper on this one and I'm going to preface this by saying, I don't care for your, your folks who are listening, I don't care where you stand on the trans issue. I don't care if you're for or against or don't know. But I am making the party pooper this week the Montana state legislator because they have censured state representative Zoe Zephyr, who is the only trans person in the state legislator. The ACLU has filed a lawsuit, and this all started because the GOP introduced a bill to ban gender-affirming care for minors. When the bill was introduced, Zephyr said anyone who votes for this bill will have blood on their hands. In retaliation, the GOP censured this individual. According to the lawsuit, they do not 
this is a bit reminiscent of what happened in Tennessee. The state rep does not have access to their office. They don't have access to the building. They don't have access to, or they have access to the building, but they don't have access to their office, I believe, to restrooms, to the house floor. And this is not what American democracy is, right? This is supposed to be a country where you can have a wide range of political views uh, to be able to express and debate political views, which is the whole point of the legislator, right? Is to be able to listen to policymakers and react and respond and put forth your perspective, your point of view, and to argue your position. Um, I just think we're setting a very strange and dangerous precedent when we cannot have discourse in the place that discourse is exactly supposed to happen. If you can't have discourse between elected officials, how are you supposed to be able to debate and, and discuss and resolve issues as a public citizen? Um, so without a doubt, the party pooper is a Montana state legislator. Again, it does not matter your perspective on the LGBT conversation, uh, particularly the treatments conversation. You should be able properly debate topics and then moving right along to the party starter everybody let's go Gotta give it up to none other than Roy Woods Jr., who hosted a White House Correspondents' Dinner and did a fantastic job. But if you don't know what this is, the White House Correspondents' Dinner is kind of like DC Prom. Um, it is an annual dinner that's part a roast of the president and that's part a roast of the media um, and elected officials. It's always been uh, historically been a bipartisan thing. And it's a who's who in media and in Washington. I'm going to play a couple of my favorite clips uh, from Roy. You, be, you can certainly check the show notes and watch the full segment. If there's one person that could use a scandal, it's Ron DeSantis. That boy is just running around, just passing every controversial law he can think of, thinking that's going to activate voters. That's not how you activate voters in this country, Ron. Everybody know how you do politics. This is America. We don't pass laws. You make a promise to voters, and then you don't do it. That's what the great leaders in this room understand. You know how to make things not happen. That was all facts. This next one is about critical race theory and Clarence Thomas. And it's actually one that I wonder if the Lieutenant Governor, Bert Jones, has listened to. Take a listen. Files on you, it's a wrap. <laughs> I think Republicans, y'all would be surprised, man, if y'all would just be real about what CRT is. You'd be surprised. Some black folks might, might meet you halfway. But you got to tell the truth. You can't lie to black people. Call it what it is. Anti-CRT policies are an attack on black history and an attempt to erase the contributions of black people from the history books. That's what it is. You are trying to erase black people, and a lot of black people wouldn't mind some of that erasure as long as that black person is Clarence Thomas. Dang. 
out. No, that was funny. And you could, yeah, you could listen to last week's episode where we talked about Clarence Thomas and his wealthy billionaire friends. Uh, and then the next one is about uh, France, which we've talked about uh, what has been going on in their country to keep uh, the retirement age the same, uh, that our folks in France lost that fight and the president raised the retirement age by two years. Take a listen to those. Working that hard. We should be inspired by the events in France. They rioted when the retirement age went up two years to 64. They rioted because they didn't want to work till 64. Meanwhile, in America, we have an 80-year-old man begging us for four more years of work. Yeah, and what's always funny about this is, I mean, it's literally you're roasting the president and he's like, you know, 10 feet away from you. Uh, and he took it all in stride. Um, and the last, most important part of all this is about our role as a society and the importance of media. Uh, so take a listen to this part. <laughs> Good journalism costs. That's the truth of the matter. Good journalism costs the people, but it also costs the journalists. It could even cost you your freedom. We talked about Evan of the Wall Street Journal sitting in a Russian prison as we speak on espionage charges. Which espionage charges, by the way, that's the foreign equivalent of saying someone fits the description. National stories in this country at some point were first a local story. And those stories are championed by reporters at outlets that many of them have now folded. And if we can't figure out a way to pay local reporters, then as a country, we're only left with that many more blind spots to where the bull is happening. The Rory just did, I thought, just a stand-up job. Um, it's not easy to gross Republicans and Democrats and the president and the media. Uh, he didn't. He got some good digs in on everyone. Um, but that is it. That's today's show. I One thing I am monitoring between now and our next episode is what happens to uh, the U.S. government from a cash flow standpoint. Will Congress or will they not uh, raise or suspend the debt limit, which would mean that if they do not, the U.S. would default on its loans and not be able to pay its bills. There's a lot of conversation about what is going to go on. The Treasury Secretary of the United States, Janet Yellen, has said Congress must act by June 1, which is when their bank accounts go to zero, basically, or they run out of money. So we'll see. There's a lot happening between now and June 1. And then you got to remember that a lot of times these conversations are not just about what makes financial sense, but it's about what makes political sense. So stay tuned for that. As always, thank you for listening. Make sure you share the pod with your family, your friends. And until next time, tell your friends about where the party at. <laughs>